hello my friends, hello my life warriors, wherever you are in the world, I do hope you're having a good day. Uh, today's podcast, uh, podcast number 20, was with one of my best friends, Joe Grunzel. Uh, yes, we talked about uh, how his life, these times, uh, what he's been doing, uh, mostly over his career. Hopefully this will be the first of many podcasts I might be doing with him. But nevertheless, I hope you enjoy today's show, and yeah, Thank you uh, very much for your time, and yeah, have a great day. Hey, peace. (laughs) Okay, hello my friends, hello my life warriors, wherever you are in the world. I hope you're having a good day. Uh, This is podcast uh number 20 uh, with my good friend... Yes, 20 podcasts with my good friend, Jonah Grunzel. Uh, I have known this lad for, oh my God... Countless years. It was a nice, hot, sunny day in uh, Holloway, and yes, yeah. and yeah, and that's when a beautiful friendship was born. Indeed, uh, it's probably twenty-five years, maybe. Could be. Could be, Could be twenty-five. Yep, yeah, twenty-five years. And um, at that time, you were working in our price, I believe. Our price records. Um, yeah. I'm not sure if any of your listeners are old enough to remember the time that there were music shops well, uh, and places you actually went to buy music. Well, you'll be surprised. Um, you'll be surprised, but yeah, um, our price records. Mm. Rest in peace, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, like with that, yeah. Over that course of time, you have been, how can I say, you have been a rather busy bee, um, like from your time at university, uh, when you became like at Liverpool uh, University's student president. Yep. Uh, from there, you went on to, I believe it was, was it? Oh my lord, why am I blanking on this? I want to say Accenture. It was. Um, just before that, I I was at Scope, the uh, charity Scope. Yeah. Their, as their parliamentary officer, but then but then Accenture. Yeah. Okay. And how long were you at Scope for? Scope was just a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then I started at Accenture. So yeah. Ah, what does like as a parliamentary officer? What does that entail? So it's basically a lobbyist. So it was liaising with MPs and Lords to kind of put across the views of the charity to mm-hmm. try and get changes in law around disability. Okay. Ah, was so, it was something you enjoyed or? I did, although I, I think I I had slightly rose tinted glasses about politicians having having studied at a university. Mm. Um, I kind of thought they were all naively. I thought they were all incredibly decent, um, truthful. Uh, human beings and I think having worked with them uh, for a year um, some of them are yeah but a, but a pretty small proportion are okay um, so yeah ah. so like with that you've you learned all politicians don't tell the truth uh. fortunately so which 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 won't be news to anyone else but but naively for me at the time I learned that harsh lesson okay so, yeah that, okay no yeah. problem and then off to the world of management consultancy with Accenture yeah Probably alongside estate agents, one of the kind of least uh, least kind of kind of popular and most most derided uh, derided kind of careers. But yeah, oh, why? Yeah. Uh, and why do you say that? Well, I think the the stereotype of a management consultant is they mm. charge a lot of money to tell you exactly what you knew in the first place. <laughs> uh, which I, I'm sure there are lots of management consultants who do that. I'd like to think that that's for me, but uh, but yeah, I think that's that's the reason they don't have a great rep. Oh, okay. And with like joining Accenture, where were you working like first of all for them? So they they sold me the dream, the uh-huh. dream of a strategy consultancy that'd be traveling the world, uh-huh. solving problems, 
Um, and my first, and I got very, very excited about that. And then, I, and then the first um, kind of assignment was up in Newcastle uh, with an Inland Revenue kind of HMRC project, uh, writing test scripts for the Inland Revenue system uh, in, a, in an old uh, army bunker. So it was, I kind of felt I'd slightly be missold on a, on a consultant dream, to be honest, but yeah. Um, so I managed to kind of um, stick it out for a few months and then and then politely and nicely and constructively said this wasn't quite what I was sold and I thought I could maybe add a bit more value um, not writing test scripts okay. uh, and maybe doing something um, a bit more related to my previous experience and kind of strategy. So then I got moved down to London um, to work on kind of strategy projects with the Home Office. Ah, so, yeah. nice, fantastic. And strategy projects with the Home Office, like it's like... You seem to find your way back to politics uh, in the early half of your sort of career, like being like president of student union, like scope, and then back to pol like home office. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and and um, mainly in the few years I worked at Accenture, it was it was kind of <clears throat> mainly central government kind of departments I worked with, as well as uh, people like police and and kind of local authorities and things. But um, yeah, the kind of draw of 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 the kind of public services and, and, and trying to find a link to what I do to something that matters and something that actually has impact. Mm. It's never really um, <clears throat> been in my nature to want to just uh, help help people make more money. Uh, I, I think I think um, people should should work um, for a clear purpose to actually make a difference to this world. Mm. Um, so I think I've always wanted to do something that that's that's actually more more directly linked to that rather than advising a big company about how to make more profit or. or Anything like that. Right. So basically with that going forward from there, like I know sort of hop, skipping and jumping, like you've sort of now, like I know through our personal friendship, you've worked in the charity sector, uh, helping them. Um, like with that, what are the sort of the, is there some type of bigger picture you're trying to help them with or? It kind of varies. Yeah. So, I mean, after, after eight or so years um, working mainly in government with, with a few big firms um, um yeah i kind of turned the charity sector and set up my own company in 2010 um doing that um and it tends to be i mean a lot of the large charities have similar challenges to large companies mm. or medium-sized companies um it's about trying to try and generate more income um in order to be able to spend more money on the people that they um they serve and their beneficiaries which could be medical research it could be uh, kind of cancer support nurses um, it could be a whole range of services. So the, what they tend to need help and advice um, on doing is 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 how best to operate in order to deliver more to the people that they serve, um, to be more efficient, to be mm. more effective. So it's tended to be either helping them on things like their strategy or helping them restructure um, or things around their fundraising strategy um, or ways in which they can save money. Okay. Great. And you say in 2010, you started your own company. Like, yeah. Uh, can you tell us more about why you did that? Um, I think I, I, I realized I wasn't brilliant at being told what to do in, in large companies. And, and, and I um, um dealing with internal politics and, and, and kind of climbing the, the, the ladder in large in large firms mm. means um, having to work with people that you don't always respect or like. Mm. And um, and I think I, I realized that that I'm not brilliant at being told what to do and, and I and I wanted the freedom to to do work that I felt mattered and made a difference. Uh, I didn't want to be 
um, selling work to people who didn't need the work, mm. um, which as you get more senior in management consultancy, you have sales targets and you, you have to find ways to sell things. Yeah. Um, and and I, I kind of wanted to sleep at night. Okay. I kind of wanted to ensure that actually the work that I was doing, um, people wanted me to do it and needed me to do it rather mm. than I'd found a way to convince them that they needed me. Right, right. Um, so, so yeah, so I set up with a business partner at the time, um, Andrew Hargreaves, ah. uh, and we, um, yeah, and we ended up focusing on the charity sector because we felt um, that was an area where um, there wasn't a lot of kind of support yeah. around professional services and, and they were organizations, um, some of them big organizations that, that have big problems uh, and do need help and support and, and um, really need some advice in order to operate better. Okay, and uh, like this is a thing you you mentioned like sleep at night now with regards to like setting up your own business that I know <laughs> it's like, it's like, it's like <laughs> um <laughs> hand to God is that the is that the reality of it or what no, well, well, I mean I, I... what's like a working day because <laughs> look when you say yeah it's fair to say yeah and clearly we know each other very well um um manager own business which i've done a few different businesses yeah. um over the last 10 years um it's a lot of work and mm. um and yeah no i haven't had many holidays in 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 10 years I haven't had a whole lot of sleep um i think what i do helps me sleep at night because i'm passionate about what i do yeah. and the organizations that i work with and i work with some amazing people um managing a business mm. is incredibly tough uh, and and I've had times and it hasn't always gone well. I've mm. had businesses that haven't worked and and timed when when work's tough, when when clients don't need you. Yeah. And and having wanted to run a business that that actually helped people who needed help. Um, what it does mean is suddenly if they don't need your help um, for a whole variety of good reasons, um, because the economy's kind of taken a downturn, or just mm. because they just don't have any problems that they need your advice or help on. Um, it means then you don't have much work. So, and there's been a few times over the last 10 years that it's been like that. So, so it has been tough, yeah. And I haven't had a lot of sleep, to be fair. When you say it's been tough, what has been like one of your sort of tough, like tough moments you would say where like the road hasn't been that smooth or you've just found it a little bit more challenging? Yeah. Um, so a couple of years ago, work really dried up on the consultancy side, mm. um, and I had um, I had kind of four or five months where um, where work just just wasn't coming in. And mm. I still had a mortgage to pay, and I still had bills to pay, and um, and that's when you know you need your friends and you and you um, as well as need. Uh, I guess that that um, I would say inner strength. That sounds that sounds silly, but um, you need to kind of believe that it will get better, and you mm. need to have that 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 kind of positivity and if it wasn't for that um for that tough few months i wouldn't i wouldn't have ended up joining aleron yeah it was it was uh, those few months that i then thought why don't i have a conversation with some of my competition mm. um with a view to potentially see if we could collaborate and and, and things and that's ended up me now um being deputy CEO of, of aleron who were one of my competitors um and we kind of agreed to kind of join forces and if i hadn't had that tough moment um, I, prob I probably would have slightly arrogantly thought I could just do this myself, mm. I could just carry on. Um, but it made me realise that it was pretty lonely running a business by myself and that, and that actually wanting to be part of something bigger um, would be A, a more enjoyable, but also um, a far more um, kind of sustainable way to go. Mm. So, yeah. yeah, I think many a person often, when, they, like, when you see people starting their own businesses and stuff like this, they 
get to either see the upside or the downside they don't actually sort of see the in-between yeah. and in with the in-between uh yeah it can be kind of you're there by yourself yeah. you don't really have that sort of camaraderie yeah. of people around you which can be uh somewhat tough yeah exactly and, and i mean i think it, it's also um from my experience about really trusting your gut instinct i mean mm. the, the businesses that haven't got so well so i uh, co-owned a restaurant for a bit and it was while i was i was very busy on the consultancy side and, and I, I didn't my gut feel um uh, was saying that something wasn't quite right that we perhaps were not um we're not generating generating as much income as we might um and that probably i should should be asking more questions to my business partners mm. um and i didn't go with my gut instincts and we ended up um having to sell after four years but um and it was great i was very very proud of the restaurant that we built but um, but that was an example of trying to do too much and yeah. not going with my gut instinct. Okay. And that gut instinct, like trusting yourself, um, must must be quite challenging on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, with regards to a restaurant, was that um, the Imperial? It was the Imperial. Okay. Uh, what did you find, like going from sort of management consultancy to the restaurant trade, that is... How can I say that is quite a sort of leap of a different like? It was. I mean, I, I've I've always loved food. Yes. Um, sometimes too much. Um, <laughs> so too. it was something. That, <laughs> it was something I'd always wanted to do, and and I had an opportunity having sold a business to to get involved. I mean, I think it's a real test of your kind of business acumen. Um, mm. Being a management consultant, you speak quite theoretically about um, kind of business improvement and things, but. A restaurant is really on the coalface. It's really, if you get it wrong, if you get your menu wrong, if you get your pricing wrong, um, you know about it immediately. Mm. You know about it from the reviews you get on uh, TripAdvisor. You know about it for your, from your take. Um, and it, it's a real test in terms of um, in terms of how you can run a business. Um, the reason that I, other than liking food and wine, um, the other reason I wanted to do it is that the other thing about management consultancy is you often don't, always see the results of what you do mm. um, if you do a new strategy or help help a client uh, do a new strategy or, or whether it be a fundraising strategy or an organizational strategy it can be years until um, the impact of that strategy gets felt yeah um, so it's not very tangible so you might be like, working incredibly hard with them you've created something that you hope will make a massive difference and then you end up going off to do something else um, you know for a different client um, you're not around to see the impact mm. um, whereas um, and it works both ways when it goes well as well as when it doesn't go well yeah. with a restaurant you immediately see if you get it right and you have a packed restaurant and people are laughing and mm. having a great time enjoying great food you know immediately and it's 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 really gratifying to re to to see that immediately if you've changed the menu you've changed the music in the restaurant you've changed the wine list you change the staff and you see it make an impact immediately uh, and that's incredibly rewarding um, and i really enjoyed that aspect of it excellent so like this is the thing you like theoretical practical and like yeah uh if you had to say to a person which would be the best sort of learning curve oh, practical would... practical certainly i learned inc an incredible amount about about myself about some of the the tests of some of that theory mm. in terms of business theory um um so the practical side um i think a lot of a lot of management consultants um, or just a lot of people don't get involved in that practical side mm. and, and and may not understand why your favorite restaurant down you know 
kind of down the road is closed or 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 think about what goes into um for instance running a restaurant yeah everything about where you buy your food um how you use your ingredients what happens if it's snowing outside and no one comes mm. Um, all those really tiny details are incredibly important, and it really makes you uh, think about and need to worry about the the real the real detail in running a business. Okay, great. Yeah, no, like this is the thing. Uh, I think too many people, like as I said before, they see the upside, the downside, but they don't see the middle. And I've heard people say about people running successful businesses, they're really oh, they're so lucky. Oh, they, oh, that's like they're doing it without really trying it and you you kind of like go what <laughs> <Is> that, <laughs> and you, you like go what <laughs> it makes no sense to me and i'm i don't know you might have run across uh, some yeah, people like yeah. that in your time. yeah i mean you and i both know that that um <laughs> the direct impact of, of me running businesses the last 10 years that we haven't got uh, as much time to spend with each other um i you know cancelling plans at last minute mm. um it's an incredible hard work. I mean, when it when it works out, it's incredibly rewarding. Yeah. Um, but it's a lot of work. It's a mm. lot of work. And and anyone who runs a business, whatever size, um, I have huge amount of respect for because um, it is incredibly tough. Mm. Uh, incredibly tough. Yeah. No. But, uh, yeah. And also with another thing with your job, uh, one of the things you must really see a lot more clearly than others is how can I say, the epic mistakes people are making on their sort of day-to-day -day business. Uh, where they can, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't know, but like, you know what I mean? Not, not giving away any secrets or anything <laughs> like that. <laughs> but, but you could most probably just be like, yeah, why are you doing this? And yeah. why, like. You do, and, and I think what's, what's challenging on a, on a personal and emotional level when it comes to large charities is, um, this is incredibly important stuff that they're doing. Mm. Incredibly, you know, kind of saving lives, yeah. um, kind of work. And and um, and while yes, I come across some fantastic practice and some mm. incredible people that I'm lucky enough to work with. Um, but yes, yeah, some of those large organisations, multi-million pound charities, um, there are some aspects of how they run the organisation that 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 aren't great. Um, mm. And I mean, they're usually open to to advice and thoughts and feedback about that. But but. I think I find on a personal level that very, very frustrating given what they're doing is not selling cars. Mm. It's not, um, uh, it's, it's, it's incredibly important stuff that changes people's lives. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and the duty of them therefore to be as good as they can be, uh, to not waste money, to, to behave in the best way possible, both uh, in terms of how they treat their staff as well as uh, um, how they treat the people that they serve, um, it can be difficult because uh, yes, in those in those ten years where I've largely worked with charities, mm. I have come across some some bits of practice and and bits of how organisations are run that 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 shouldn't be the way they are. Mm. Mm. <clears throat> yeah, one of the things I would say I've seen with sort of large charities is some. Um, sometimes how they deal with the sort of changeover with sort of new media and how they sort of interact with that. Um, I think it's a case of they, they see it, but they don't get it, or they yeah. get it, but they don't want to do it yet until something forces them. That's a really interesting question, actually, because um, most, most charities, when it comes to their fundraising and marketing, um, are very different 
from the private sector, yeah. they prioritise mainstream TV when it comes to how they spend money. Mm. Um, and and they've been very slow to react on the digital front um, and, and, and don't prioritise that, even though people are moving away from mainstream TV mm. with subscription services and, and, and just the change of the media landscape. Um, but I think a lot of charities are, are, are um, in my view, overly focused on the fact that it's only TV which can make an emotional impact. It's only TV advertising that can change hearts and minds, whereas yeah. the private sector, um, if you look at examples such as uh, Dove, or um, uh, yeah. which had a big, big campaign about positive body image, mm -hmm. they didn't just rely on TV adverts then. They were still trying to make an emotional point, mm. uh, an emotional connection to their product, but they really prioritised the digital side and didn't just rely on mainstream TV. Um, didn't they have a through like a girl campaign in Dove, uh, where they basically went, yeah, uh, what does it mean when you throw like a girl and they got like all these different ladies to come in and talk about what it meant and then it was like, yeah. But that was yeah. Dove and like that were, and I think I saw that on Facebook first of all. Yeah, yeah, exactly and, and, and the ones, and that's where the private sector recognised that where the people they want to impact uh, mm. either make an emotional connection and ultimately of course to sell them things yes they they operate and advertise and prioritize where those people are and those people mm. are increasingly not just watching mainstream tv um which on catch-up they can forward your expensive advert mm. um pretty easily and 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 they recognize that um if you want to make an emotional connection which private sector companies want to do just as much as yeah um charities do you don't need to rely on tv um to do that and the challenge with charities and their and their over focus in my view on tv is it's very expensive it's, mm. it's the most expensive channel so by prioritizing tv um kind of advertising um they actually spend a lot of money mm. um, whereas if they had if they change their channel mix and 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 really prioritize on the digital side yeah um they could make just as much impact but save a lot of money okay um say if i was a charity I, and i went yes want to like get our message across do promotion like we'd like we love print we love tv but um we're thinking about the digital space where would you say where would you sort of like i don't know if this is like your sort of expertise but you know i mean would you what would you say where would you tell them to go what would you tell well them it's not go? i mean it, it's not my particular mm, expertise, but 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 um, I mean certainly um, certainly obvious things like like Facebook. I mean, um, other than other than Facebook, uh, Instagram, and mm. and kind of obviously kind of Twitter, but the the best campaigns are integrated across all of those platforms, mm. um, and really think about um, uh, both a TV angle as well as um, as well as the kind of digital channels, but also. The first step is is identifying who who do you want to speak to yeah. because if you want to speak to um, an age group and a demographic and an audience segment that is largely at home then you still might want to prioritize tv if you want to change hearts and minds or really get a powerful message across to the young then prioritizing mainstream tv with your with your campaign is not going to work very yeah. well because they're not going to be watching tv so i think once you're clear about the people you want to you want to get across a key message, mm. uh, whether it be for the private sector, a kind of sales message, or a, or you know, for a charity, a, a, a motive message about why they should give you money, or or to, or whether it be a message around heart disease or cancer. Um, really thinking quite carefully about who do you want to get that message across to, mm. and what are the 
what are the media channels that they are consuming and then and then thinking about that in terms of the channel mix in terms of how you then get that message across and cinema is one of the one of the main growing channels because okay. cinema um you can't fast forward cinema mm. um, you've got nice surround sound you've got a very big big tv um right in front of you in terms of the screen uh, but plus you can actually segment based on the film mm. you can know uh, with relatively um um amount of certainty you can think about who is watching that mm. so certain types of films will draw certain types of people okay uh, and therefore if you want to get a certain type of message across you can pick those films and people usually get in early to watch the trailers yeah um and rather than relying on mainstream tv where um it's a bit more scattergun and people might be watching on catch up and can fast forward on cinema you can get your message across to an audience with huge screen big a big surround sound and based on the film you can you can pretty much tell who is going to be receiving that message mm. or tailor it to that particular precisely. film. Yeah, precisely. Or yeah. genre. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Oh, excellent, excellent. Like, so, what sort of like challenges do you think are sort of on the horizon uh, with say the either the charity sector? Uh, can you foresee coming its way? Well, the, I mean, there's there's the obvious one in terms of. Um, the the <clears throat> Brexit has it, everyone's been worrying about even yeah. even before um, it had been kind of I wouldn't say finalised because it hasn't been finalised mm. but you know, before we actually left the EU um, the impact on the economy mm. um, uh, is huge and that and that impacts um, charities uh, just as much as it um, kind of impacts um, small and large businesses um, and obviously things like the coronavirus also do that in terms <laughs> of the economy uh, as well um, oh, yeah. Um, also, a few years ago, um, there's been a lot of um, a lot of government moves to introduce more regulation to the charity sector, um, oh. particularly around how they handle data, which is which has impacted charities' ability to um, to look at individual giving, which is when um, kind of people give direct debits. Um, right. And in the past, and I think that it's fair to say there are lots of bad practices that a lot of charities engaged in in terms of. Uh, buying the details of people in order to then send them asks, send them kind of requests to set up a direct debit, ah. um, which they can't now do. Um, um, so that's impacted that 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 bit of fundraising. Um, so for charities, it's it's increasingly tough mm. to raise money because the people who they're trying to raise money um, from um, are having a tough time in terms of the economy. Um, and that's not just on things like direct debit. It's also um, a lot of charities rely a lot on legacies. Um, right. And obviously, if, if if the economy goes down and the house prices go down, then that can massively hit um, those charities which uh, rely heavily on people leaving money in their will, which is usually the value of a house mm. um, or an estate. Um, and some charities rely on more than, more than half their income on that. So if suddenly there's um, a big downturn, which then hits house prices, that can hit those charities um, in a very big way yeah it must be somewhat difficult to like if it was any other type of sort of business you'd like go you need to diversify yeah um and from like where i say i'll go how would a charity kind of diversify or what would they look how would they plan to do that yeah well yeah i mean and, and that's and that's often one of the things that i work with them on in terms of um how best to diversify their income mm. um kind of portfolio i mean it's it's hard because if if charities have been set up <clears throat> based on the income kind of historically, they'll have uh, large teams sometimes doing doing things like legacies um, and have a underdeveloped um, um, 
other areas of fundraising, um, mm. whether that be corporate um, or um, major giving um, or events and sports and, and um, various others. So it, it's usually looking at where the where the potential is in terms of um, very much in terms of kind of bringing in income and the audiences um, in which um, which they might be able to attract and what then are the activities that audi those audiences want to do. So if you if you feel that your current fundraising portfolio um, is largely driven by legacies uh, and it's underdeveloped in things such as sporting events um, and you want to bring in more young people um, mm. both from a, from a volunteering point of view as well as a supporter point of view uh, thinking about what those young people want to do mm. uh, thinking about what other charities are doing uh, and really thinking quite carefully about what are the mechanisms and vehicles you can um, you can put together in order to be able to generate that income and it's a very crowded space I mean things such as uh, sports there are lots of um, races and cycle yep. rides and obviously marathons and things that lots of other charities are doing so mm. <clears throat> trying to find a new thing um, is often very difficult but the, and and often I think charities fall into the trap of thinking they have to find something completely new in order to be able to generate income uh, when actually thinking quite carefully about what they're currently doing how to adapt mm. it to different audiences how to to slim down sometimes the number of fundraising uh, events or um, kind of vehicles and products that they're doing yeah. uh, in, or, in order to really prioritize effort on things that are bringing in the most income and the most return classic less is more yeah yeah mm. exactly exactly mm. and, and it can be hard sometimes because lots of these events have been going on for years and years and years mm. And for a whole host of reasons, people have either got bored doing them or they're or the competitors now have a similar race that they market more or whatever it might be. There are lots of examples of of very well known kind of charity vehicles that the income um, has has started to come down. But almost those charities have a have an attachment to that event mm. or to that way of bringing an in income, which means that they're um, they don't really want to be able to pull out of it or reduce effort in it and, and I think the other thing is a lot of charities are really thinking quite carefully about um, things like innovation and 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 thinking quite carefully about the teams they have and and thinking about what are those new ideas out there that they want to harness okay um, and sometimes spending a lot of money on on kind of individuals and teams who are looking at product development and looking at innovation mm. um, in my view of those and I've and I've set up a few of them in a few national charities the mistake again is trying to uh, trying to think that you're going to find the next ice bucket challenge. You're going to yeah. find the next groundbreaking thing that's going to go viral and global, um, rather than really sweating what you've already got. Mm. Really thinking quite carefully about how you're raising money at the moment and how to optimize that, rather than having expensive teams who, um, for want of a better phrase, sit on beanbags, stroking their chin, thinking about what the next ice bucket challenge is. <laughs> Um, and I've had conversations with directors of fundraising who will say, I need a team who are going to find me the next ice bucket. And, and that, in my view, is missing the point. They could have hundreds of current events they're already doing yeah. and, and maybe in some areas doing badly and bringing in not enough money. And yet they want to concentrate on the effort on Oof. finding something, a silver bullet that's going to yeah. save them income-wise. No, because the ice bucket challenge, let's just say, uh, that's like lightning in a bottle. It was... You, trying to capture that as you say silver bullet yeah wow um, yeah. And, and there are lots of other areas i mean a, a great example in in terms of an area of growth is around corporate giving so mm. a lot of corporates um are um are now full of people in terms of their staff 
um, who are increasingly socially conscious. Oh, yeah. Um, and so um, there's been a big change in that area where it's moved away from corporates just giving um, lots of money or, or just kind of uh, just a large grant to really wanting to partner with charities. Mm. Um, so the charities can work with their staff um, from a campaigning point of view or, or from a from an educational point of view um, and, and, and really trying to identify ways in which you can find companies and corporates who want to be a genuine partner yeah um and there's a huge growth area in that bit yeah i'd say the sort of biggest sort i wouldn't say corporate but foundation of the recent times is bill melinda gates is foundation which pretty much it came from nowhere but in the last sort of is it is it eight years now or is it ten years about 10 years, I think. Yeah, they've made huge strives uh, with like fighting malaria. Uh, and I think sanitation is going to be one of their big things as well, mm. which, um, if you think about it, was not a thing uh, if this was 2002 or like early 2000s, late 1999, late 90s, excuse me, wasn't even a thing. But yeah, corporate Kevin. Yeah, and, and I mean, that's an example where corporates set up a separate foundation. Mm. That, 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 so rather than just um, having an annual or a biannual way to partner with a few charities, they actually set up a separate kind of entity. I think the uh, Gates Foundation, who um, I've done a bit of work for, um, for a malaria partnership based in Geneva. Mm. Um, what's interesting and a good lesson learned there is while they are not just focused on malaria, malaria mm. is, um, is one of their focuses. And, yeah. and, when I've worked with other foundations, um, often, uh, you know, usually set up by incredibly well-meaning people. Um, in my view, they often spread their, their net too widely. They want to help everyone. Mm. Uh, and they'll have a long list of objectives as a foundation that they want to um, reduce homelessness. They also want to uh, increase um, kind of employment among the youth. or they want to, And they have a whole list of um, things they would like to do. Right. Uh, and therefore... Um, they end up giving money to lots and lots of organizations in quite small amounts, um, sometimes make a difference, sometimes not, mm. um, rather than actually thinking about focusing a bit more mm. and saying, where do I really want to make a tangible difference? Where, yeah. where can I make a big impact? And if the Gates Foundation had spread their, let's face it, large sums of money mm. across every single cause that might want Microsoft money, yeah. um, they might have, I'm sure they've done some, you know, would have made little bits of impact everywhere. Um, but not as much impact as if you commit a billion pounds to ridding the world from malaria. Yeah. Then you can actually make a proper impact on one one specific thing. Um, and I think a lot of foundations um, should think more carefully about where they can genuinely make impact, which might mean, I mean, going back to the thing you said a minute ago about um, kind of less is more, mm. actually focusing a bit more on a specific cause, which may change every three years, um, or it may um, stay the focus, and it doesn't just have to be one thing, but it shouldn't be 20 things, it shouldn't mm. be 30 things. Uh, and really think about where um, where money could have a real big tangible impact, because some of these foundations, we're talking millions and millions, billions of pounds, mm. that if they focus their efforts on specific areas um, of need, whether it be in this country or or indeed globally, they could make a massive impact rather than spreading that um, across um, thousands and thousands of different causes and needs. Okay. It feels like there's a sort of 19th century renaissance going on uh, back in the day where it was the Roundtree Foundation now um, with, um, I think, does uh, Google has one, um, also Amazon has one. I know it's like big tech at this present time, but yeah. Uh, yeah. 
hopefully, uh, they will be able to sort of start be that main domino to knock down many a thing. Yeah, and 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 what's exciting about that? I mean, I think some mm. of them being set up because the the founders of those companies generally want to make a difference, and some of it because they. Uh, think that it looks good in their annual report um, or it's good for their stakeholders or investors mm. but um, some of these foundations as I said are, are huge in terms of the impact that they could have um, and and its impact that the government may not be having or can afford to make or can afford to actually focus on certain areas and if and if those foundations do um, prioritize the things they want to change in this world they could play a massive role in doing things like ending um, malaria uh, or, or or ending homelessness in London which is a massive problem um, mm. they could do a lot of a, a lot of massive good if they really thought quite carefully about where they focused um, their effort and where they focused their grants like I'm getting from the way you're talking I'm getting a, like sort of real buzz of optimism in the air like uh, for you um, would you say that is commonplace uh, do you think other people are actually seeing the opportunity which is sitting there before them in terms of charities yeah i think i think it's very very tough in charities at the moment and mm. i think it, it, it's quite hard to see optimism because um it's concerns about the economy uh, it's harder and harder to fundraise um it can be hard to recruit um people it, it, there are a lot of there are a lot of pressures on charities at the moment mm. and um, um and there's also kind of big concerns about the reputation of charities because of lots of kind of scandals that have hit over the last few years. Um, I'm generally quite an optimistic person, as you know, um, and I think <laughs> focusing on the on on particularly factors that you can't control, yes. like, like the economy, um, isn't fruitful um, and isn't useful. Um, I, do, uh, I do see lots of areas and reasons to be positive. We have young people who are increasingly socially aware, mm -hmm. um, who want to do good, um, which I'm not sure when you and I were growing up was was the norm necessarily that everyone wanted to um, uh, would necessarily go to a march um, about climate change, for instance. I would say the difference when we were growing up, it was it was harder to sort of galvanise people, mm. whereas today with the sort of like social media yeah. and everything, like you can mobilise people a lot more easily. Yeah, you're right. You're right. But um, but for whatever reason. Um, the young, um, um, you know, those that are you know, most most people are younger than you and I, Mira, but um, um, <laughs> you speak are, for yourself. Are, really, um, um, are um, very passionate, whether it be about climate change yeah. or, or lots of other things. I think charities are, are struggling a little bit to how best to harness that passion when it comes to volunteering or mm. when it comes to fundraising. But that is, that is a reason to feel positive. Um, if you're a charity and you have a increasingly growing um, growing area of society who who cares passionately about giving something back mm. um, but the onus is on charity to think quite carefully about how best to harness that mm. not only in terms of the channels they use in terms of social media and, and things but also when it comes to things like volunteering um, how best to harness that passion whilst recognizing that that a, a young person may not be able to commit years and years working in a charity shop and therefore thinking quite carefully about how you engage that audience mm -hmm. um, but I think it's a, it, it's it's a positive thing and the charity should be thinking positively about that um, rather than just focusing on worrying about the economy okay great um, has there been any one sort of particular charity which you've seen like sort of take the lead at present or 
like sort of like you know what I mean going in that sort of new direction there's lots of examples of charities and I, I obviously don't want to talk about the charities that I work with but um, no, no, no. but um, I think lots of charities are are, are doing a lot of innovative things mm. um, I mean Movember for instance um, have recently really focused on men's mental health uh, which is which is still the biggest killer of young men mm. um, globally and and while they had and they moved away a bit from just a focus more broadly on men's health or indeed prostate cancer mm. um, and from a campaigning and a fundraising point of view they focused on an area not only for fundraising means in terms of that it was it was perhaps more tangible and real yeah um, but also uh, from a campaigning point of view really focused on an area where they felt um, there was an education to do in terms of how to help young men um, access services and really start talking to people and they made great strides in terms of um, things like football and, mm. and 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 finding the vehicles and the mechanisms in which to get their message across um, and there are lots of other examples of, of charities doing things innovatively um, I think some of the larger charities um, find it a bit like a large company find it um, quite hard to move nimbly and quickly mm. um, and it's often not until they have to because of big big concerns about income um, that they then think we have to do things differently and then they might think well what is everyone else doing what are the things we can learn and what are the things we can change um, but a lot of large charities if it's been working for them for 10 years 20 years 30 years 40 years um, why, why change, why change? <laughs> exactly okay yeah. which i can imagine can be quite frustrating yeah. at times uh, yeah yeah oh man no oh. um yeah there's a this is a wealth of information picking up here <laughs> <laughs> it's like yeah getting much more of a clearer sort of insight uh like into the sort of charity sector and like a little bit more of a clearer insight of what you have to sort of go through on a sort of day-to-day -day basis um for, like to me yeah that's it's not easy especially when you go up to someone yeah you need like say you need to change and when you like when that person hears that what uh no we're quite happy the way we are why should we change yeah. it's everything's fine and yeah it's a sunny day where you can just look at the raw data and go yeah it's not a sunny day yeah and sometimes and that's often a problem the the quality of data mm. and the information which large charities have at their disposal to manage their organization mm. um, is often very poor um, and I think there are lots of elements um, of the private sector that the charity sector do much better um, and, but I think on the data side and the kind of performance management side mm. um, um, it's often including the largest charities in this country um, the data they have is poor their ability to see what's wrong where it's going wrong mm. why it's going wrong um, is really um, is really challenging to get hold of and therefore it's not reliable and therefore it's not trusted and therefore decisions are not made both in terms of internal operation mm. uh, as well as the impact they're having on on the people they want to serve whether that be um, around um, heart disease or whether it be around cancer actually robustly measuring the impact they're having so if they're spending hundreds of millions of pounds what impact are they having yeah um, and really finding a robust way to measure that um, most charities find really challenging um, as well as as I said their internal operation uh, they tend to worry a lot about income and expenditure beyond that uh, it tends to be very poor in terms of the quality of management information um, which does sometimes mean when me and my team come in 
we tell them some quite uncomfortable truths mm. uh, having looked at their data and done a lot of um kind of analysis as what's going on um it can then be as you say quite a difficult conversation mm. as well okay like if there were three things you could change within the charity sector what would those three things mm. be um wow only three um <laughs> i would change lots but um i think but yeah the quality of leadership and governance mm -hmm. um i think for large charities they they can afford to pay big salaries uh, and i'm i'm one that that doesn't believe um in the victorian view of charities that people should just be volunteering these are big big organizations mm -hmm. big operations and you need people who are properly qualified to do that um, you shouldn't overpay them but you should pay them um clearly decently and lots of large charities um um can't have the excuse that they have poor leadership because they don't pay well yeah uh, they do pay well um but i think they don't look uh, further afield enough when it comes to recruitment and um the quality of leadership um i find not in all charities but with a lot um it could be better um and then on the governance side how senior teams including trustees um who are who are on trustee boards do they have the right skills to actually help charities mm. um do they care enough um, and do they and does the senior team when it comes to staff um, work as a collaborative effective senior team um, and quite quite a few charities that I've worked with I would say the answer is no um, mm. and then that is a massive issue for the whole and um, for the whole organization um, and that is a kind of key theme so leadership and governance um, I certainly would change um, I think the um, one I've just mentioned around management information mm -hmm. uh, I think it's it's um, one of those things if you run a business um, you need to know not just about income and expenditure but you need to know the pipeline of work you need mm. to know the views of your customers there are a whole host of things which if you run a business you should care about and most most businesses care about and have access to data yeah um, but a lot of a lot of large and medium-sized charities don't uh, they don't routinely capture that data they don't routinely look at it um, which net, which really impacts their ability to run their organization effectively. Yeah, and I think it's quite strange in today, like today's sort of business environment, if it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago, I can understand how that sort of data and information could be kind of obscure, but with the sort of tools which are around today, it, there is a, it leads to a lot more transparency yeah. within any organization. Yeah. Uh, be it charity or corporate or yeah. like a little shop on the corner yeah, uh, yeah. completely and the, uh, and the third one as you've asked me for three mm. um <laughs> would be and it's kind of linked to the culture uh, piece but charities what's wonderful about working in charities is you work with really passionate people who care about what they do mm. and um um who um who are really connected to the cause often and are not only incredibly talented at what they do but also care and the two don't always come hand in mm. hand of people who who have talent as well as who care but what i see a lot in charities is that can lead to a culture where um for want of a better phrase they are too nice um when it comes to dealing with performance management of staff mm. um, they're conflict averse they they don't want to have different conversations which isn't just about firing people it's also about identifying where underperformance is mm. and helping and supporting those employees with it um, because it can sometimes lead to a culture where um, they want to avoid conflict they want to they have a view um, in my view um, 
a view which isn't um, accurate that people um, uh, that they're lucky to have people work for them therefore having difficult conversations about someone's performance um, they can't really have that because you know I'm sure if we lose them they could earn five times more in the private sector uh, mm. which is something I've I've heard a few times which is um, uh, which is nonsense frankly mm. um, um, but also it kind of misses the point point. Um, if you care about your employees and you care about the work that you do and the services that you deliver um, and the difference you make to this world you should want highly talented motivated high performing individuals to basically help raise your standards across the to world. help raise your standards and the only way to ensure you have have a workforce that is talented highly motivated mm. um, and is delivering is to tackle underperformance uh, as well as share high performance mm. and 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 really um, any kind of approach which for the reasons of conflict aversion or 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 a, or a lack of processes within HR that lead to you not having those difficult conversations means you are doing a disservice to the people that you serve. You end up having people in jobs that it's probably not very fun for them. They know that they're not performing, mm. um, but no one's had a conversation with them about why. Yeah. No one's helped and supported them. Or in some cases, they're not the right person for the job. Um, but I've seen examples where people have stayed in that job for years uh, and those conversations haven't happened. And the knock-on effect for that organisation and the people that rely on those organizations and the money that they generate um, is huge um, mm. and they have a duty to ensure that they they look under performance and have a workforce of highly motivated talented people yeah no excellent no thank you thank you very much for that uh with regards um just sort of stepping away from the sort of charity sector mm. uh you've been also doing lots of work with schools as well um I know you've been doing work with schools here and, and abroad. Um, like, what sort of areas have you been kind of focusing with schools? So, um, I set up another company with the former chief inspector um, for independent schools, um, mm -hmm. a lady called Dame Christine Ryan, um, having run the consultancy for the independent schools inspectorate for a few mm -hmm. years. Um, so, we've been mainly focusing on on inspection and quality assurance of schools. Um, so. Uh, recently in the UK, been working with the DfE um, on some proposals around how how best to um, inspect virtual schools. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, if you imagine um, mechanisms such as Ofsted work very well in a classroom-based environment, but yeah. How do you ensure quality of provision um, if you're delivering your learning online, for instance? Um, because the people who are receiving those services and in and in some cases paying for them should still expect high-quality education. But the mechanisms to inspect schools that are classroom based um, mm. are clearly not not suitable if you have um, if you have your students that are spread all over the world or spread all over the country. Yeah. So uh, uh, that's one area. Then the other area um, in the Gulf, we've been working with a country who wanted to set up um, uh, a new um, school accountability quality assurance. Um, they didn't want to use the word inspection, but they wanted to find a way in which. Um, they could ensure the quality of their schools. Um, and a lot of countries in the Gulf um, look to the British education um, system mm -hmm. uh, as as kind of best practice about how best to do that. Um, so I've been working over there the last couple of years to help them set up a new, um, it's kind of a school inspection process, but yeah. it's kind of quality assurance process and training school inspectors um, to be able to do that. Okay. Wow. I see. Um, what have been sort of some of the sort of challenges with that sort of um, type of business because you're doing like 
having to communicate with the school inspectorate, I imagine, and then basically communicating with the actual app. <clears throat> clients you want to actually speak to but what have been some of this yeah i mean i mean in some of the countries that i've worked in they don't have a existing inspectorate so we're kind of starting from um from very much the kind of bottom up of creating these things yeah i think the challenge often is um trying to design new systems and processes um and approaches which respect and, ad and are adapted to um, the country that they're in. Mm -hmm. You can't just lift and shift a British inspection process that might work very well um, with the schools that you and I went to, or indeed for, for kind of independent schools. Yes. Um, it won't necessarily work in terms of culturally, mm -hmm. um, um, as well as a whole host of other, uh, other areas with, with different countries. And, and sometimes, those countries can assume that you can just just completely plug and play. It, yeah. plug and play. Um, but a lot of work that we do is to really understand what those what those nuances are culturally. Mm. What are the differences of the of the teaching staff? What are yeah. the differences in terms of the students? Um, what are the schools trying to deliver, which um, isn't the same? Um, that just as all schools in this country are not the same, the variety of schools you find internationally. Um, both in terms of their curriculum but also in terms of their culture uh, are very very different and therefore you have to ensure that whatever you put in place uh, works and adapts to mm. those different situations um, which is not just about um, things like, such as language and translation mm. but also uh, thinking about cultural norms um, and thinking about um, the the different priorities um, that the country has mm. um, yeah like I would imagine in some regards to some countries, uh, their sort of expectations on results would be sort of wildly either yeah, optimistic. Completely. Or... And a lot of those countries are, are wanting to heavily invest in education because they mm. want to um, you know, invest in their young people and, and really grow their country. But their expectations, as you say, um, are sometimes way off. Mm. Um, and this sometimes comes comes back to data in that they... Um, they sometimes have been told uh, that, um, by various people within their own governments that they are better than they think they are. Um, and and making sure that they have an accurate picture of where they are now mm. uh, and a realistic picture of where they can get to, which doesn't mean, which, which doesn't mean dumbing things down and, and doesn't mean lowering expectations. Every country should have the highest possible expectations for their young people. Mm. Um, but equally, you have to recognise where you start from, and you have because otherwise, um, you you end up going through um, you have a child going through their education where the head teacher and the minister of education may be convinced that they're providing an education that's on that's on par internationally, yeah. whereas, whereas in fact it's not. And unless you recognise where you are currently, you can't really think quite carefully about where you need to invest in and where you need to improve. That sounds like a very delicate conversation to have. It can often be very, very <laughs> it's delicate. Well, don't want to say, well, your kids, well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How can I put this? Yeah, <laughs> a bit like the charity study, I, I'm, I'm, I've had to, got used to having quite a lot of delicate conversations with mm. people about, about what's happening in their organisation or, or their country, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> we won't go. 
deep into that because you might have to return this to these places. Exactly. <laughs> That's that why I'm not naming any countries. <laughs> no, they're all great and they're doing wonderful jobs yeah. all around yeah. the world. Congratulations to whoever you might be. <laughs> you have bright, bright, very bright children. <laughs> but it's not, I mean, I, I mean, I know you're joking, but it, but yeah. it, it clearly isn't about the, the, the intelligence of children. Oh, yeah. Um, and I think that one of the things we we often find um i mean my business partner is that is that there's been an over focus on teachers rather mm. than teaching so there's a focus on 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 giving on on trying to hire the best teachers yeah and paying them big salaries and and um and and then giving them a checklist of what makes the perfect teacher uh, whereas in fact what your focus should be is on the student um the impact the teaching is having on the student yeah. because if it's you can have the best qualified teacher in the world and pay them a huge salary if the students are still not learning yeah and they're progressing then it clearly isn't effective yeah no like if it's about building those one-on-one -on -one relationships and if you can't do that as you say yeah. you can pay them all the money in the world but it doesn't mean they're going to get that that individual child to pick up that pencil pick up that pen to step up to the plate and make things happen yeah so. exactly and 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 having realistic but ambitious expectations mm. of the children in that classroom which whilst sometimes we find that it's unrealistic expectations in terms of um imagining that they're overperforming or, yeah. or kind of performing international uh, norms there can also be expectations that are too low that they think well we can't possibly um um expect us to be hitting this and and every country should expect the best possible for their children mm. and and sometimes i've found working with governments that their expectations are too low that they think well um we're a, we're a developing country we can't expect our children to be meeting that and 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 that's the wrong starting point surely you should you should be concentrating on delivering the best possible mm. education there are restrictions sometimes with resources obviously but but you shouldn't um start on the premise that your expectations are low for yeah. students but i think anyone who actually refers to like the developing country first and foremost they've already sort of like hardwired the excuse mm. into play before they actually do anything completely and and i actually use the term developing not just in terms of um some of the poorer countries in this world but there mm. are lots of actually very rich countries that are still developing their infrastructure still developing their systems mm. because they might have recently um, um found wealth through uh, natural resources and things and they're not developing the stricter sense of the word in terms of a poor country, but they are they are still just putting in place the building blocks for a society often. And mm. they might have had a population explosion because um, um, because they found oil or, or yeah. whatever. And so like, they're, they're still trying to think quite carefully about um, how should they structure their education. Yeah, it's, it's basically their education system is not a matured yeah. like thing at this present time. Yeah. So getting those sort of delicate nuances is tricky yeah. to say the least but uh, but with that um have, have what what's been the most challenging thing you'd say about it on the education side yeah on the education side um the one thing about the education um system in general and it can and in in pretty much every country is it's very hierarchical mm. um it's uh um, and it's the, exactly the same in the UK. Um, people who who become school inspectors in this country, for instance, um, would have invariably been a head teacher, 
they've been used to telling people what to do. Mm. Um, and then if they're an inspector, they then tell other head teachers what to do as far as um, now good school inspectors shouldn't be doing that. But um, <laughs> So I think one of the hardest things um, about, and it kind of goes back to the having difficult conversations, is um, with, a, with an industry that is very hierarchical, yeah. as well as age-based. So if you don't have enough gray hair, if you haven't um, spent decades in the education system, um, there can be quite a lot of cynicism about the value that you can add. Um, so, and when me and my business partner, um, although um, Christine has does have decades of experience in mm. education, we do come up against sometimes people who feel because they have worked in that country or indeed in parts of education for decades and they think that I'm not old enough to offer any thoughts um, in this um, <laughs> or indeed because I haven't been a head teacher, I yeah. don't have any right to. Um, that can be a really, really big challenge. And you have quite entrenched views mm. in a very hierarchical industry, um, which can sometimes be very very challenging to address. Mm -hmm. So trying to break down those like hard heads, yeah. as we say, <laughs> can be somewhat <laughs> of a challenging day. Yeah, it can. Okay, it can. okay. It's making realize that I, I just often just have lots of difficult conversations with people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which doesn't sound like a lot of fun, does it? <laughs> it's like, well, hey, <laughs> you know what? <laughs> This is what you signed up for. Well, this is yeah. why you started these businesses. Like, <laughs> like, if you thought it was going to be easy in a sunny day. I should like, have done something else. Well, I, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, yeah. like painting in the south of France. Well, maybe not the south of France right now. It's okay. No. Maybe one day I'll, I'll I'm sure. off and do that. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure. Like, ah. Now, um, with regard, like, with regards to sort of like a lot of this, there's been, I can imagine, a lots of personal development along the way. Like sort of what, what sort of tools have you used to sort of help with that personal development? Interesting question. Um, yeah, and I, I think it's been particularly important uh, since, since kind of 2010 when I was running my businesses. So when you're, when you're working for big firms, you, mm. um, you get lots of... Uh, coaching and lots of formal and informal training and yeah. guidance um whereas the last 10 years i really haven't I kind of haven't had that so i kind of needed to seek it myself i mean i think um i'm a great believer in in um in learning from the people around you uh, and certainly aleron what i've enjoyed doing is um helping build a team of really smart people mm. uh, who really challenge me and who really get me to to think differently about things um because i passionately don't believe in hierarchy and i believe good ideas can come from absolutely anyone of of any age or level and, mm. and trying to create a, a consultancy that, that actually lives and breathes that and recruits really smart but sometimes quite challenging people which yeah. really helps me personally develop i think specific tools i've always found um myers-briggs incredibly useful um it's a personality tool which um the probably most widely used um kind of across the world which which looks at identifying your key drivers as an individual mm -hmm. um, which can work really well both on an individual basis but as as well as working with teams that i've done done that with to really understand the preferences um, and drivers whether you're an extrovert or an introvert yeah whether you're a feeler or a thinker um, and that's not that everyone can um, be boiled down to a few letters and that everyone neatly fits into something like that mm. but it does make you think um think about your style and your preferences and how best to adapt that 
to individuals who have a different style to you. So when it comes to having those challenging conversations, yeah. uh, thinking about people who are more who are more data orientated than me, or okay. are more extroverted than me, um, or or perhaps need to see the evidence before they make a decision rather than go with their gut feel, and adapting how I work, how I speak, um, and 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 how I interact with individuals with quite a different personality type. And it mm. doesn't have to be a tool like that. It could be a whole variety of different things. But but I think finding ways in which you can still stay stay true to yourself while recognizing that you can stay true to yourself um and not adapt and a lot of people just miss you will, mm. not, will not understand you because they don't they don't see the world and understand the world um the same as you do and yeah. therefore finding ways to adapt how you speak um how you explain things how you get your point across um and adapt it to different styles and approaches uh, is is incredibly effective um, w- rather than just going with this is the way i am therefore yeah. i fully inspect everyone to completely be <laughs> impacted by me uh, which is not clearly realistic uh, not to be a mighty oak be yes. reed in the wind precisely fair enough uh, there you go <laughs> liking that liking it a lot um if you like what is your current favorite book I know. I just throwing questions at me. You might have like slightly prepared me before. Um, <laughs> my favorite book. I've current favorite book. I still. It's not a recent book, but yeah. I um, Malcolm Gladwell Blink uh, is still one of my favorite books. Okay. So Malcolm Gladwell has um, did a very famous book called The Tipping Point, um, and um, he's done a, quite a few different books. Um, but Blink is a is a fascinating book about what he calls thin slicing. It's basically the science behind gut instinct. Right. It's about what we sometimes think is gut instinct is actually just our brains taking a lot of different small bits of information and helping us um, trigger an action, mm-hmm. um, which we might think, well, my gut instinct told me to cross the road um, at that time, not others. And actually your, your, your different senses have taken in lots of different bits of information, yeah. partly from what you're seeing and sensing and partly what you're, you've experienced in life to cross the road because you're worried about a group of people and it may not be you're worried about them because their age or how they look you just have a sense and the reason you have a sense and a gut instinct is because of um it's not because of a lack of data it's because your your brain's actually made the decision quicker than you consciously considering what that data is you just made a what you think is a gut instinct and well actually that gut instinct is still based on a lot of data Um, and it's a fascinating fascinating book and and it, it it looks not only at um kind of personal behavior driven by that but also advertising so for instance um it looked at seven up and 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 how they looked at how much yellow or green they put on the on the on the label Mm. on the can would impact how much lemon or lime people tasted in the drink they didn't taste the drink but people um thin sliced i see yellow i'm going to taste lemon i see green i'm going to taste lime um and and it's a big thing in advertising about why their packaging is so important yeah what it what it instills and inspires in you um and the audiences they want to get that that key message across um so it's a it's a fascinating book i would i would recommend to anyone perfect perfect um i'm currently like going through sapiens at this present sapiens is a great book as well yeah fascinating i'm only i think four chapters in and uh yeah go like thing what sort of like blew my mind is like where it's like a, yes we're like wheat basically made us it's like work bitch <laughs> it's yeah. like it's like, it was like 
and it made us stay put. Yeah, it made us stop being hunter gatherers. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think well, you've got this part of the book, and I won't, I won't spoil it uh, if you have, but um, the point in which communities, as we have evolved, need rules, mm. whether that be religious rules, governance rules. Once you get beyond a certain number of people, you can't just have people doing their own thing. Yeah, uh, you have to have someone who organizes, and you have to have a set of rules, whether that be a set of rules ordained. Um, by a deity, or they be uh, rules um, by a supreme leader, by a supreme leader, or yeah. whatever. And, and it's it's yeah, that's like another it. fascinating book. So yeah, no, good choice. Like it a lot, like it a lot so far. But yes, we have been going at this for one hour and seven minutes. Wow. Yes. Now, is there any questions you'd like to ask me, by chance? Wow, I get to answer. <laughs> you can answer. You can answer yeah. questions. Well, okay. Um. What over the last, I mean, I think we've worked out we've known each other for about 25 years. Mm. What would you say, in terms of your own personal development, what was what was a period in your life or moment in your life that you learned the most in those 25 years? Hmm, not the most in those 25 years. It sort of, go, it sort of goes through sort of ebbs and waves. I sort of like go through sort of hyper patches where I'll be like learning a lot. And then there'll be like a long sort of like, yeah, I've been sort of cruising along. Um, I would say I've done a lot more cruising than I like over the sort of last sort of like 20 years or so. But I'm trying to like, I'm working on changing that and basically uh, through a number of different methods to sort of help me sort of grow and like push myself, get myself out of my own comfort zone. So it's, I would say I've been, very much aware more of it over the last three years and it's like i'm trying to get everything into gear to push like push for the next yeah 10 20 years i'm not too sure what form that might take yet but as i say it's it's not a very clear answer but <laughs> i know i mean we start off with politics it's quite a good good kind of politician answer me right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe politics one day who knows maybe politics yeah but yeah hopefully um i will be down growing a little bit better getting a little bit wiser as time goes by but we shall see well you remain one of the wisest most positive people i've ever met in my entire life so i have no doubt that you'll nail it well i'm i'm sure i'm sure i will and your checks in the mail <laughs> or do you prefer bank transfer transfer <laughs> even that or cheese and wine works oh well cheese and wine don't yeah, worry it's good i'll get you a little hamper <laughs> on your way <laughs> can't delve to too much as you can see i'm doing this podcast in the bedroom <laughs> but yeah um where would people be able to find you on your social medias um <clears throat> have to confess that i i, I don't do lots of um Lots of social media because I, I can't really talk about the work that I do. Um, LinkedIn, um, mm -hmm. it's very easy to find me. I think I'm the only Jonah Gruntsel on LinkedIn. So that's probably the most, uh, the easiest thing. Or if you put Alaron um, into Google, that will come up as well. But yeah, um, kind of it, it, it helps business-wise how easy it is to find me. Um, mm. um, but, it, but it means I have to make sure that I both continue to, 
continue to do a good job and don't don't really mess anything up because otherwise there is no escape because as far as i know i'm the only jenna gruntzel on on facebook on linkedin or on anywhere so um so yeah there's a bit of an onus on me to make sure that i behave myself and that i carry on doing a good job i'm sure you will be doing a fantastic job <laughs> from now until the future uh yeah but okay what i'm gonna say is sir my friend jonah thank you very much for doing this today it is much appreciated uh yes um no doubt i'll have you on the podcast again Love but you. talking that more on like more fun things yeah and cool. yeah but yes but for this i thank you i am grateful i like to thank anyone who is out there listen to this now like yeah 280 downloads so far and uh yeah i'd like to say have a fantastic day be awesome be excellent be fantastic be all the bees you can be and thank you (laughs) bye-bye